0: If you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you open with me to Luke and chapter 9. Luke and chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. As we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke, we started 9, uh, 10 through 17 last week. So this is a two-parter we're camping out in this text, but uh, next week we'll move on from this text, uh, and then I'll kind of explain further. About the two-parter here. So Luke 9, 10 through 17. If you got it, say I got it. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. For you to follow along there. Let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 9, starting verse 10. Holy Spirit says, On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodgings and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and, ha- and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Amen. This is God's Word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. All of you uh, are likely familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, yes? Author of all-time classic works like *The Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, and more. Uh, a name you may not be familiar with uh, is George MacDonald. MacDonald was a 19th century Scottish author and he had an incredibly profound influence on C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis even made him a character in his book, The Great Divorce. Well, McDonald, like Lewis after him, wrote fantasy works as well. And one in particular I want to bring to your attention is a children's book, and it's called The Princess and the Goblin. The main protagonist is an eight-year-old girl, and her name is Irene. And the story tells of how she finds an attic uh, room in her house, and every so often when Irene is in the room, her fairy grandmother would appear. When Irene goes back to look for her, she's not often there, so one day her grandmother gives her a ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a little ball of thread. And she explains that she'll keep the ball, the grandmother, with her while Irene keeps the other end with the ring and the thread tied to it. But I can't see it, says Irene. No, the thread is so fine, too fine for you to see it, you can only feel it. And with this reassurance, Irene tests the thread. Now listen, says the grandmother, if you ever find yourself in any danger, you must take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you, okay? And she says, oh, how delightful it will lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Yes, said the grandmother, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing, you may be sure that while you hold it, I hold it too. A few days later, Irene is in bed, and goblins get into the house. So she hears them snarling out in the hallway, but she has the presence of mind to take the ring off and put it under her pillow. And she begins to feel the thread, knowing that it's going to take her to her grandmother and to safety. But to her dismay, it takes her outside, and she realizes that it's taking her right towards the cave of the goblins. Inside the cave, the thread leads her up to a great heap of stones that appears to be a dead end. And the thought struck her, writes McDonald's, that that at least she could follow the thread backwards and thus get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. See, the grandmother's thread only worked forward, but forward led into a heap of stones that seemed to be a dead end. So Irene burst into a wailing cry, but after crying, she realized that the only way to follow the thread is to tear down the wall of stones. She begins tearing it down stone by stone. Though her fingers are soon bleeding, she pulls and pulls. Suddenly, she hears a voice, and it's her friend, Curdie who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. Kirti is astounded and asks, why, however, did you come here? And Irene replies that her grandmother sent her, and I think I found out why, she says. After Irene has followed the thread and removed enough rocks to create an opening, Curdy starts to climb up out of the cave, but Irene keeps going deeper into the cave. Kirti objects, where are you, why are you going there? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out from. And I know that, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. And indeed, the thread proves trustworthy because her grandmother is trustworthy. Following Jesus is a bit like that, isn't it? Irene knew only the heart of her grandmother. She could not see the string. She only knew who was on the other end of it. And she didn't know where it would go. And sometimes, like in the instance I just told you about, she was led into places she didn't think she should go. But in the end, she trusted. Even when it took her to pass, she would not have chosen for herself. Sometimes, following Jesus takes us to places we would not have gone. Into circumstances we would not have chosen. To do things we're not so sure we are capable of. In other words, Following Jesus is surprising, but even while it can be frightening at times, we know who holds on to the other end of the string. In the story before us that we're considering again this week, we see Jesus doing surprising things that catch even his disciples off guard. And throughout it, he works through those same disciples to accomplish things they never would have imagined. Now, last week, we took a big-picture view of this well-known scene to explore truths that it reveals about Jesus' identity. So today we're going to look more into details and see lessons for us as followers of Jesus and how we ought to pursue his mission, even as we don't always know where it will take us or if we have what it takes. So three points, can you imagine? Which are three practical lessons for us as we sojourn through this world, following the lead of our greater Moses, calling people to repent, and follow him too. So point number one, embrace disruptions. Embrace disruptions. As we saw last week, the scene opens with the disciples returning from a mission trip Jesus sent them on in verses one through six, which will come into play later. They come together and they tell of how everything went, but we're not given those details, remember? Well, Jesus knows the boys could use some rest, right? He could use one too. So he leads them to withdraw to Bethsaida in hopes that they could recharge and decompress. And Jesus would certainly continue to teach them and prepare them for the time when he would ascend and they would carry forth the mission. But then what happens in verse 11? The crowds learned that Jesus was in Bethsaida, and so they went to him. Jesus had become something of a celebrity, hadn't he? And a word spread of him of about him of some of his miraculous deeds. Surely people had heard about his healings of lepers and demoniacs and perhaps even those instances when he raised the widow's son and Jairus' daughter from the dead. This is then a disruption in what Jesus was going to do with his disciples. Yes, this is a disruption. The crowds mobbing him are putting a damper into their quest to rest. But as we saw, Jesus does not send the crowds away. He does not dress them down. He does not tell them that he and his disciples need rest and they can wait. He does not tell them that they are a bothersome intrusion standing between him and relaxation. Instead, he, verse 11, does what? Welcomed them all. This makes me think of, you know, celebrities in our day and how they respond to being mobbed by people and the paparazzi, right? It gets to them, doesn't it? They grow tired of it. And you can imagine why. They sometimes break. They angrily yell at the press or tell their fans who harangue them in public to leave them alone. Or they might acquiesce to an autograph or a photo, but you could tell that they're being deeply inconvenienced. Now, who could blame them? No one wants to be bothered all the time like that. But on the other hand, no one forced them to be a celebrity, right? What do they expect? But Jesus isn't like that. He's a bona fide celebrity. In this region of first century Palestine, and this is without cell phones, no social media, just good old-fashioned word of mouth like he lives in South Georgia or something, right? He gets pressed on and followed. People want stuff from him, and he even knows that some people would just use him and leave. But what does he do anyway? He welcomes them. Matthew and Mark actually raise the intensity of this scene by saying that the report of John the Baptist being slain by Herod is what triggered Jesus wanting to go to a secluded place with his disciples. So Jesus is mourning on top of his disciples being tired from their missionary journeys. Add all this up, and it would be understandable for Jesus to send the crowds away, don't you think? And yet, Jesus sees the crowd, and he, what? Welcomes them. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus saw them, saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them because, you remember, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus' compassion for them and his desire to help them trumped his own needs, didn't it? Jesus saw an opportunity to preach the kingdom and heal the sick, to alleviate their spiritual and physical distresses, and he seized that opportunity. We should see from this scene not only Jesus' compassionate heart like we talked about last week, but that he embraces interruptions and sees them not as interruptions per se, but as opportunities to do good. Is that how you see interruptions in your own life, I wonder? No one likes when their plans are interrupted, right, or ruined. Anybody like that when that happens? Of course not. Some of you are so structured with your lives that your week is planned down almost to the minute. Are any of you like that? Don't lie. I know some of y'all are like that. Just control freaks with your time, right? Others of you are less structured. Now, flying by the seat of your pants. Anybody, anybody like that? But, but no matter who you are, Nathan laughs, you don't like, no matter who you are, you don't like being interrupted. You you don't like when your plans are ruined. You don't like when something doesn't go according to plan or wrecks what you've envisioned for your day or month or year or even your life. But how do you respond when those inevitable disruptions happen? More than ever, human beings live under the delusion of self-sovereign control. Our watches, our smartphone calendars, instant news, connectivity, radical individualism, all tell us that we are masters of our own fates and captains of our own destiny. So we plan and we schedule and we map out our lives so that when the inevitable wrench gets thrown into the works, we get flustered and flummoxed and agitated. Who likes, I mean truly, like having their plans altered? Interruptions and unforeseen circumstances don't just annoy us. They challenge our perceived control of our own worlds. Interruptions annoy us because our own lives and plans also become the most real thing that there is to us. As D.A. Carson said, Individually, each man tends to assume without thinking that he is at the center of the universe. Therefore, he relates poorly to the four billion others who are laboring under the similar delusion. What Jesus is teaching his disciples here through this scene and ones like it is to see interruptions not as interruptions, but as opportunities. To see things that throw off your plans, great and small, not as irritants, but as reminders that we are not in control, but that a good and wise God is. To see things that alter the plans of our day or weeks or even our lives and ask, how can I leverage this to grow in likeness? And how can I leverage this to show people the kingdom of Christ? Jesus, being sovereign Lord of all, knew that this would happen, didn't he? When he came to Bethsaida. But his disciples didn't. When our lives are interrupted and our plans are altered, we will be surprised and we will be flummoxed. But God isn't. He has sovereignly placed you in every circumstance, to mold you, to shape you, and for you to be a witness for the kingdom of Christ. Do you see interruptions like that? And as is the case with all hardships, they can shape you for the better or for the worse, but they won't leave you the same. These interruptions can be great or small, from ruined travel plans to setback in your life plans. How do you respond? When the relationship or marriage was supposed to be a Picturesque and give you some sense of fullness turned out to be a broken heap or a constant struggle because they didn't turn out to be everything you wanted. When you plan to save money, but every time you do, something around the house breaks and demands all your savings. When your dream job turns out to be a disappointment. When you have a grand plan for the trajectory of your kid's life and they grow up and they rebel or reject Christ or fail when you yourself plan as a teenager to have a life go a certain way and at every step things fall apart, when you believe yourself to be living right and eating right and staying in shape and the tests come back positive, when you are well into adulthood and you look back and you say not only where did the time go, but how did my plans go so awry? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Do you... Let those setbacks send you into a hopeless depression, or do they drive you to the arms of a Savior who has seen all of that and has compassion on you? Do you become downcast, or do you ask the Holy Spirit how you can use these disruptions for the growth and glory of Christ? Do you become bitter and cynical and angry, or do you in humility remind yourself that you are not in control, but the God who loves you, with a love, unmeasurable, does. And he is not caught off guard or surprised by anything. Use them to come alongside others who are going through similar hardships so that you can help them and point them to Jesus. There are a few people, not many, but a few, that I think of when I read Hebrews 11 And you remember when the author of Hebrews tells of saints of whom the world was unworthy? Do you remember that? There are a few people I think of when I read that. One of those people I think of is Johnny Erickson Tada. Who I consider a contemporary hero of the faith. If you don't know her, Johnny was someone who when a teenager, she had plans for her life. She was athletic. She was fit. Her father was an Olympic athlete. One day when she was 17 years old, she was swimming in Chesapeake Bay, and she went to dive into the water, but she misjudged the shallowness and ended up paralyzed from the neck down. At 17 years old. Her whole life ahead of her. And when it happened, of course, she went through bouts of depression and anger, suicidal thoughts, doubting God. But then she came to the place where she said this, and I think this is astounding. She said, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. She said, have you ever considered the potential glory your life can give to God if in your wheelchair you remain faithful? Since she resolved this, God has used her. Some of you know her, right? God has used her suffering to minister to people who suffer, and people with disabilities who have been all but forgotten by society. She did not plan for this to happen. Because of what she knows of God, she has leveraged her pain for his glory and the good of others who struggle. Friend, when your plans are altered, interrupted, ruined, when your life is upended by the unforeseen, stop and ask, how can I use this to grow as a person in the likeness of my Lord. How can I use this to reach people? How can I use this to grow in reliance on a sovereign God who I know cares for me? When we know who holds the other end of the string, we can follow where it leads without fear, remembering that he leads us to the paths we otherwise would not have chosen, but that those interruptions might just be divine appointments. J.D. Gere writes this, Have you ever noticed that often the best moments in our lives come in the form of unexpected interruptions? The best parenting moments rarely happen on our schedule. The best witnessing encounters never happen on schedule. God just puts us next to somebody who needs a word from Him, and it's up to us to respond. People we love and who truly need something from us rarely have their moments of crisis on our schedules. He says, has your child ever had a meltdown at an opportune time? Even our conversions don't happen on schedule. A healthy Christian life is one in which we learn to live free of devilish distractions so you can be open to the divine interruptions and obedient to the Holy Spirit. A robust view of the sovereignty of God should more and more teach us that there is someone in control and it ain't us. But that the one who does have control is bending history towards his Christ. And those who bear the name of a disciple live lives that should be primarily about pointing to that fact. Interruptions, change of plans, even painful and difficult circumstances can be used for the kingdom and for our own growth. This is a fundamentally different way to look at the world, isn't it? Who looks at disruptions like this? Jesus did. And so should we embrace disruptions in the likeness of our Lord. Next, point number two. Point number two. We should embrace compassion. Embrace compassion. We spoke at length last week of Jesus' compassion, which looms large here, of course. Indeed, it looms large in everything Jesus does, right? (laughs) In the very fact that the eternal second person of the Trinity will come down on this rescue mission to redeem wayward humanity. All of it is driven by compassion. Here, Jesus is compassionate, as mentioned, seeing the people like lost sheep who need a shepherd, and in him, the perfect shepherd all of our hearts long for is found. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. But Jesus wants us to imitate him in his compassion for people. He wants us to share his heart of compassion to see people the way he sees them. See, we aren't simply to marvel, we should, but not simply marvel at Jesus in compassion, we're to imitate it. When Jesus looks at people and sees sheep without a shepherd, we're supposed to see the same. When Jesus looks at people who need the message of the kingdom, and so he tells it to them, we're supposed to do the same. When Jesus sees people in need, of daily bread, and then feeds them, we're supposed to do the same. Jesus' compassion activates his activity, and so it should for us. But there's motivation for this posture in us, isn't there? Consider again the disciples here. The disciples were thinking pretty logically. Can we agree on this? This is pretty logical here. (laughs) They didn't want the people to go hungry. They saw a need, right? So they suggested Jesus, wrap it up, right? Send them away so they get some food. Now, remember, there are about 5,000 men here. That's what the text says. So there's also women and children. So we're talking 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people here. And they are, verse 12, in a desolate place. There's no food here. This is something in our 2022 American context we might miss. These people in this text struggle even to get daily bread. The most basic necessity of life in this context They struggle to get They are quite literally living day to day, not always knowing where their next meal was going to come from. Most Americans don't struggle like that. Isn't that fair to say? Not to mention the fact that we can just drive down 16th and find plenty of places where we can pull up, talk into a speaker and get food within minutes or walk into a grocery store and grab something to eat. These people are in a desolate place. There's no food. And so the disciples say, tell them to go get food in a surrounding village. What does Jesus say to this? I love this. What does he say? You give them something to eat. Then they start doing the math, right? Well, we have five loaves and two fish. Even if everyone just, like, took, like, a pinch, right, this would not be enough. And if we went to get them food, We couldn't afford it for we don't have enough money. So they're at an impasse. They don't know what to do. Now, I want you to key into Jesus telling the disciples to give them something to eat. For one, they forget who they're talking to. Yes? Robert Stein says this, the disciples were thinking quite logically in terms of the natural order of things, but they were forgetting the presence of the one who is Lord over the natural order. We'll talk about that more in our third point, but for now, I want you to think again about verses 1 through 6, okay? This is related. Do you remember what Jesus told them, the disciples, to take on their mission trip? Somebody say it. Nothing. (laughs) They weren't supposed to take anything. Instead, they were supposed to depend on the hospitality of others. Their ability to eat and have a place to stay was utterly dependent on people in each village, So they accepted hospitality in those places, yes? Now think again what Jesus says in verse 13. You give them something to eat. In other words, you accepted hospitality. You received it with gladness. Now is your chance to give hospitality. Will you? Do you see? Jesus challenges them. You received hospitality. Will you give hospitality? And you know the need, indeed, you're the one who brought it up to me. You are sensitive to the issue. Will you solve it? Is this not a lesson for us? Are we compassionate? If we are not compassionate, or we struggle being compassionate to others and their plight, there's a reason for that. You know what it is? Gospel Forgetfulness. I remember early on in my ministry, I preached a message about the poor. And this older gentleman came up to me. This was back in Texas after service. And he said this, and he was being genuine. He said, I struggle with being compassionate on people because so many people who need help seem like they got into those messes themselves. That's what he told me. Because of their own bad decisions. I just don't feel bad for them. That's what he said. I just can't have compassion on them. I just don't feel bad. I don't think he was alone in that. I think a lot of people think like that. And if I'm being honest, there are times when I've thought like that. But truly, it's another form of gospel amnesia. When Jesus wants us to have that, would Jesus ha- want us to have that disposition towards people? Did he have that disposition towards us? See, the failure to see. People with compassion is a failure to remember that Jesus had compassion on you. If we say, well, they must have done something to deserve their lot. What we're really saying is, I have the omniscience to somehow know what brought this stranger to a point of desperation. We don't know that. But then, think about it in light of the fact that before Christ, we were all on a trajectory towards hell, and guess whose fault that was? Whose fault is it that we were so sinful it took nothing less than the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ, to redeem us? Whose fault was it that we were at enmity with God and deserving judgment and condemnation? It was our own fault. Condemnation is the just deserts for our wicked rebellion. We don't deserve grace. You deserve grace? We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve compassion. But Christ saw us and had compassion on us and moved to save us at a cost to himself. Isn't this the same thing with forgiveness? Why should you forgive people who have sinned against you? Is it because they deserve it? Of course not. It's because you've been forgiven eternally worse by God in Christ. When we see someone who needs the gospel, a message about the kingdom, or who is in need of daily bread, or is in bondage to their sin, let us not harden our heart towards them, but instead remember that Jesus had compassion on us in a way that will take us an eternity to understand the depths of. Friend, there is not a person you know. I need you to get this, okay? There is not a person you know or will see in your whole life or will meet who is not, one, made in the image of God and thus worthy of dignity and value, and two, profoundly loved by Jesus and in need of rescue. There's a, I can't help but see it, an ever-growing callousness of professing Christians where we see image bearers of God as enemies to be vanquished or conquered or sinners, fully deserving whatever bad thing has befallen them, a callous, compassionless posture that looks nothing like our loving Savior. Whether it be the way we speak about our political opponents or immigrants or refugees or the poor in our own city or people stuck in cycles of sin and addiction We speak and treat them with a harsh callousness that effectively strips them of their humanity as people deserving of their plight. Or worse, we actively root for their downfall because that's easier and more comfortable than having a heart move towards them that acts on behalf of the compassionate Christ whose heart feels for them and who has called us to be his representatives of his kingdom towards them even if it costs us. Did it cost him to get to you? Did it? I know we're Baptists and we're mute for whatever reason. We walk in those doors. Did it cost Jesus to get to you? Friend, do you feel compassion towards people? Do you see them as image bearers of God who are loved by Christ? Do you remember in those moments how Christ was compassionate towards you? Would you and I henceforth endeavor to see people the way that God sees them? You know, I think of when I was thinking about this, I think of a a fellow named Alex Montoya. He's a pastor in the Los Angeles area, and he wrote this about what he does when he wants to regain compassion for people. Listen to what he says. He says, that is when I retreat to a small taco stand in the barrio of East Los Angeles to a place where real people live. I order a cup of coffee and sit with my back against the wall. Then I watch, I observe, I read, I listen intently for the heart cry. A group of gangbangers come in for a snack. One in four will die before the age of 18. Two of the others will end up in prison. All are doomed to a hard life. A young mother comes in with her brood of youngsters. It's obvious they're poor. They share drinks. They live in poverty. Some will never see a forest or snow. An old drunk staggers in begging for a meal. He's quickly thrown out. That was somebody's baby boy. A mother at one time cradled that man and nursed him. I look, I listen until I hear their cries, until their souls cry out to me, please help, I'm perishing, until the tears pour forth from my melted heart, I'm in love with humanity once again. This is what Jesus would have us do. To remember, we received hospitality from God. We received compassion from Christ. We've received a new heart from the Holy Spirit that causes us to see people through gospel-colored lenses and then act as Christ acted towards us when he saw us as sheep without a shepherd. And friends, the very design of Christ is for us to live this way. Do you realize that? To this day, Jesus sees people with compassion. And how does he act? He acts through his people. He expects his people to do the things that he did in the way that he did it. This brings us to our third and final point. Embrace the limitless Christ. Embrace the limitless Christ. The disciples are perplexed because they don't have a solution to the problem that they've brought to Jesus. So Jesus takes matters into his own hands and instructs the disciples in verse 14 to have the people sit in groups of about 50 each. Look again at verse 15 and 16. Let's read that again. And the disciples did so and had them all sit down, the crowds. And taking the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, and this is what I want you to see, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Did you notice that while Jesus is the one who multiplies the loaves and fish, it's the disciples who actually pass them out? This is the key. If you write things down, I want you to write this down. Jesus supplies the power and provision, but the disciples minister through that power and provision. Let me say it again. Jesus supplies the power and provision, but the disciples minister through that power and provision. This is an important lesson for us. All of this is on purpose. Jesus supplies the power and provisions, and his followers tap into that power and provision and use it to minister to people. Look again. Jesus does not pass out one single loaf, does he? Not one. The miracle didn't bypass the disciples, excuse me, (coughs) it went through them. Yes, the miracle didn't bypass them, it went through them. Our problem may be then, like the disciples before verse 15, that we forget the power that Jesus provides for us. Oftentimes we lack evangelism and power in ministry because we don't tap into what Jesus provides through ordinary faithfulness. We rely too much on our own power and the power of men. We fear man more than we fear God. The disciples forget in the midst of this problem that Jesus is right there. The same Jesus who saw a storm and rebuked it. The same Jesus they saw exercise demons by the thousands. The same Jesus who they saw walk up to a funeral plank and touch it, and simply say, arise, and the corpse breathed again. The same Jesus who held a centurion, healed a centurion servant while being in a different zip code. The same Jesus who they saw tell a paralytic to get up and walk, and the man immediately got up and skipped home. The same Jesus who they saw touch a leper, and he was immediately cleansed. This is the same Jesus who they look and say, what are we going to do with all these hungry people? Stand before the Lord of creation, wondering how they're going to feed all these people, is like standing before Niagara Falls, wondering where you could get water. They know he could do anything, but they forgot. They forgot. Friend, do you forget too? Do you forget that Jesus' plan A for reaching the world is you? And do you forget that Jesus is still in the business of doing the miraculous and still in the business of having compassion, and still in the business of meeting needs, and that he wants to do all of that through you. See, the problem is not that we have no power in ourselves. That's actually a good thing. The problem is that we too often rely on the power of people and not on the power of God, of our own ingenuity and creativity and might. The problem is not that we don't feel weak enough. It's that we don't allow that weakness to drive us to reliance on Christ, and we allow our claims of personal weakness to drive us to forsaking the mission. Don't you see that Jesus intends to continue to reach the world, but He intends to do it through your ordinary obedience? There's a story that always comes to my mind when I uh, when I think about the power that's available for Christians in ministry, and it's it's there's there's a famous incident. Maybe you've heard of it before. Just before World War II, in a town in North Texas, there was a fire that broke out at a local school, and it took the lives of 263 kids. Now They had to wait until the war was over to rebuild, right, since all the material was being used for the war effort. But after the war, they rebuilt the school, but this time they learned their lesson, and they built a state-of-the-art sprinkler system. this, This thing was so advanced at the time that they even gave tours to show off how high-tech and effective the new sprinklers would be if something like that happened again. Well, after several years, the town, it grew. So they needed to expand the school. And you know what they found once they started doing construction? That the sprinklers were never hooked up. They had the most advanced sprinkler system in the world at their fingertips, but it was never hooked up and thus never tapped into. So if there had been a fire... The results would have been disastrous. We, too, can forget the power that's available to us. We can forget the powerful Christ who wants to work through us. The power of the Spirit of God is right there for us for service and growth, and we so often don't tap into it. We rely on our other things, or we don't pursue the mission at all because we're more focused on our powerlessness than we are on His available power and provisions. Knowing we are weak is a good thing, but only insofar as it drives us to pursue the mission with full reliance on our triune God who supplies all things and meets every need. Sometimes we forget that God blesses ordinary faithfulness. We like the big and sparkly, don't we? Sometimes we get nervous and worried in our lives and in the church. I've been guilty of the same nervousness and anxiety at times. How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to afford that? How are we going to do this? How are we going to manage that? How are we going to grow this? How are we going to do that? What are we going to do now that this or that happened? Oh, you of little faith. It doesn't depend on you, oh man, and your power, and it never did. Praise God for that. It depends on this glorious Christ. And he intends to work in the world through his people, but on the power that he supplies. Not on the power we supply, for we have none. And we could trust that if we are obedient and depend on him, everything will work out for his ends. When we begin to depend on man, that's when we fail. Even if it looks to all the world that we are succeeding. We must believe that Christ means to work through us, but that the power comes from His hands, and that He blesses ordinary obedience. Didn't you? Do you notice how much is left over? Isn't this interesting? Twelve baskets, broken pieces. Coincidence? The disciples went and divided the. You know, they divided the food up for the people. They divided the people up. They they took the food. They went to Jesus. They took more food. Groups 50, gave it to them, went back and forth to another group, and on and on until everyone ate, and they ate to the full. Then they come back to Jesus, and what's left? Enough to satisfy them and feed them to the full. You guys see where I'm going with this? The disciples did what Jesus told them to do. They obeyed his instructions. They relied on his power. They served people, and Jesus took care of them, didn't he? Friend, Won't he take care of you and your needs too? Doesn't the bread of life promise to satisfy his people? Won't he take care of you if you pour out yourself to have compassion on people and preach the kingdom while relying on his power? Won't he take care of you if you do that? Won't he take care of First Baptist Church of Cordele if she pursues faithful obedience for the glory of Christ depending on his power and provisions? Won't he take care of us? Jesus worked through the disciples to provide for the people's needs. The disciples were extensions of the grace and power of Jesus here and beyond, and he calls you to be the same extension here and now. You, friend, are are you surrounded by needs where you live? Are you? Where you work? Where you go to school? where you play, where you socialize, where you network in this county, in this state, in this country, in the world? Are you surrounded by need? Are you surrounded by people who don't know Jesus and some who haven't even heard the gospel? With so much need, don't think for a second, what can I do about it? I don't have much. Because you are attached to and following and called by and empowered by and animated by the Lord of all creation. Jesus wants to do miracles, and he wants to do them through you. I'm going to say that again. That should flabbergast and honor us. Jesus wants to do miracles, and he wants to do them through you. You're saying your little heart, not me. Yes, you. You don't need to be powerful. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be clever or brave. You just need to be obedient. Jesus wants to do a miracle that involves you. Jesus intends to fulfill you, satisfy you, and meet your needs, but he also intends to meet needs through you. God wants to do eternity-shaping things through you. Do you realize that? Eternity, you can affect people's eternity through ordinary obedience and reliance on Christ. Once you realize that, what will you do with it? More often than not, we don't know where obedience will lead us. That's why it's sort of scary, yes? But sometimes obedience must precede understanding. We need to, like Irene in the opening illustration, just hold on our end of the string and follow it, resting in the knowledge of who holds the other end. And we have our motivation, don't we? What does Jesus do before he passes the five loaves and, two, and the, and the fishes out? Verse 16, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves. Now, why include the detail that Jesus broke the loaves? It's because in this act, we're supposed to see a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. In fact, the language of blessing and then breaking and then handing is almost identical to Jesus instituting communion at the Last Supper. Now, what does that point to? It points to the broken bread, which pictures Jesus' broken body. His compassion for rebels led him to a bloody cross and torn flesh. His love for stubborn sheep who want to be their own shepherds and to get themselves in all kinds of trouble drove him to die in place of them, in place of them. Of you. And he looks at those who have been redeemed by his blood and broken flesh and says, Go and preach the kingdom and do mighty works. He says, You give them something to eat. He says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. What an honor to serve such a king as this! What an honor to pour out our lives for the only kingdom that will last forever. What an honor to reflect our Lord as we see disruptions as opportunities and to see hurting people as ones who need the gospel and daily bread. What a privilege to be used by Christ and rely on His power and provisions. Will you respond to Christ's broken body and His willingness to meet your every need by using up your life as His hands and feet? Allow me to close with this. From Trevin Wax on this passage, he says this, and then we'll pray together. He said, often when God calls us to serve him, we worry about resources and finances. Can we afford it? Do we have the time? Will it be costly? Then, when we are sure that we have heard God's voice, we respond by dangling before him a list of needed items as if we're headed to the supermarket with a grocery list. Jesus didn't ask the disciples what they thought they needed. Neither does God ask us what we think we need in order to serve Him. He asks us to look at what we already have. In response to our rattling off a list of necessities for ministry, God replies, fine, what do you have? God waits to see what we do with what we have before He intervenes and brings the miracle. Jesus sent the disciples out to find the loaves and fish already available. Then, with those loaves and fish, He performed the miracle. Too often we think that our inability to earn our salvation means we're unable to do anything, even after we are saved. Yes, we are often people of little faith, but God wants to transform our little faith and small resources into a big miracle with limitless possibilities. A little can become a lot in the hands of Jesus.